welcome back to Cow's Internal Monologue. In this episode, we're going to be discussing the Babylon 5 Season 4 episode, Whatever Happened to Mr. Garibaldi? Which, uh, I, I, I just like the title, like, just on a semantic level. You know, it doesn't really mean much, you know, it's, it's just set up the mystery of Garibaldi storyline, which is going to be mystery for a majority of the season, but... I just like it because, to me anyway, knowing JMS's roots as a big comic book fan, specifically a Superman fan, uh, you know, the connections to whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow, uh, you know, that that is just a really cool thing. It, it, it may be intentional, it may not be, but I like to think it is. I just think it's a cool little connection. It doesn't really mean much in the lo- larger scheme of things. I just like it. I think it's a cute, cool illusion. Now, uh, we have uh, quite a bit to talk about in sort of Sheridan's side of things, uh, and then Jakar's side of things. Uh, ironically enough, Mr. Garibaldi does not feature a whole lot in this episode, even though he's in the title. Uh, so I'll go ahead and mention that, that obviously, as I mentioned, the the sort of mystery of what's happening to Garibaldi is going to be most of this season, uh, his storyline. Um, and we're still not quite sure what's going on. We know he was captured by the Shadows at one point, and now he's been captured by another group of people that we get confirmed at the end of this episode is the Psychor, because a person comes in wearing a mask, but they have a Psychor badge. Uh, and they are trying to get information out of him of what happened when he was taken from Babylon 5. So there's a, clearly a either a gap in his memory or something going on. Uh, there will be answers and a lot of a lot of uh, hints and stuff. I'm I was tempted to do a spoiler section to just go ahead and talk about it, but there's a particular episode with a particular hint that I want to talk about uh, in the spoiler section. So. I'll talk about it when we get there. Um, then Delin's section of the story uh, is uh, basically she is fasting uh, out of sort of two conflicting things and emotions just sort of piling on. So tradition, tradition of Membari says you must fast for a certain amount of time. You must purify yourself and your thoughts and your spirit uh, when you're in mourning. But the problem is, is that she's no longer holy Mimbari. She is part human after her transformation. So she can't actually do this. And so Lanier and Franklin are trying to, you know, talk sense into her and say, you are killing yourself. But the, 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 the inheritance of the tradition and Mimbari mentality about tradition isn't the only reason. It's her excuse. Her real reason is her guilt. Uh, the guilt, as I mentioned way back, you know, uh, at the very end of season three, of the fact that she knew that Anna was still alive, didn't tell Sheridan, and didn't give him the option to choose what to do with that information. She instead withheld it. Uh, and she blames herself. She believes that Sheridan's death is ultimately her fault because uh, by not telling him, she pigeonholed him into one choice. And that one choice got him killed. So therefore, you know, she, she in effect, was the person who knocked down all the dominoes. Um, there is a hint of truth in that, but not wholly. Yes, was she in the right or the wrong to, uh, you know keep the information from Sheridan. 
It's a complicated answer, but I would say she is in the wrong. That's why Sheridan was so mad at her in the begin with, is, you know, he is fighting for the idea of choice, and she refuses, you know, to let him have that choice out of fear. Um, but she is not the reason that Sheridan got killed. Sheridan got killed, uh, you know, for trying to do the right thing. He, even if he was openly told about Anna, he probably still would have made this decision long before. Uh, he is his own human being and therefore subject to free will. Uh, and as such, you know, there, there are times when uh, you can mean th well on someone and tell them information or keep information from them, but that doesn't mean that they're going to go the way you expect them to. Humans are allowed to have their own thoughts, their own opinions. Uh, and of course, she learns learns the lesson uh, that Sheridan's father taught him, that if you're falling from a cliff, you may as well try to fly. You have nothing else to lose. It's turning pain into a positive, is what Sheridan says. And that's a skill that few people actually have ever mastered in real life. Uh I've, I've, I have struggled with that, and I still struggle with it, but I try my best. I know people who just can't turn a pain into a positive. They wallow in the sorrow and the sadness and the misery. Uh, and, you know, it, it's all too easy to look at someone with issues and, and whatnot and say, just be happy. But it's not done out of malicious intent. It's not done out of, uh, you know ignorance it's done out of you have to learn to compartmentalize and realize that you are sad because of your pain you have the right to mourn you have the right to be sad but figure out how to turn that sadness into a weapon everybody talks about the danger of rage but the uh, tool that is anger but we never talk about that in regards to sadness and pain and yet we should, uh, in my personal opinion. These are aspects of the human condition and therefore can be used as well as used to our detriment. They can be used positively and negatively. Uh, and so uh, I like how she decides, you know what, screw it. We're going to take the fight. The, the shadows have retreated. We're going to take the fight to them, go to the Zaha Doom. If my lover, you know, Sheridan, is around, great, we've saved him. If he's not, he's dead, well, then he's become a martyr, and we've taken the fight to them. And we'll win. You know, it, it, it's a chance to stand up. Turn that pain that uh, of the loss of her love into a positive force for change. Because as she puts it, if we just stay here, nothing's going to change. So we might as well do whatever we can now. And then the Drakkar bit of this episode is just tragic. So he goes about, you know, searching for Garibaldi and he ends up on another planet uh, and uh, gets recognized and there's, of course, a bounty on him and he's been given sanctuary, uh, you know, all the way back in season two. And as long as he remained on Babylon 5, this, uh, you know, he, he had the protection of the crew Babylon 5 and could not be harmed physically or diplomatically the problem is that he's left it which was 
a rather dumbfounded move, but a move that makes perfect sense when you think about who Jakar is. Think about every time that he's taken matters into his own hands and attempted to leave. You know, uh, the humility uh, that he faced and the, the regret and the sadness he faced when he had to ask for Sanctuary all the way back in Season 2. And then look at how he kept trying to violate that Sanctuary by leaving to help his people or to help a friend. And this is the second time he has actively left Babylon 5. There was another point that Talon had to face him down and force him to stay. Uh, so, like, this, it's a dumbfounded move, yes, but it's a move that Jakar would make. Um, we so often, I, I, I think I've talked about this before on, like, various rants of mine uh, throughout these episodes about character interaction and character decisions and plots in, in storytelling in general. We so often look at characters and we say, well, that's not logical or that's a dumb move or why would they do that? But we're not in their situations. We're not, we're not privy to the stress, the pain, the anguish that, that, that is all within them at that moment. We do not have a gun pointed at our heads, so therefore we don't know what we would do. Oftentimes humans and, <laughs> hell, you know, animals will make dumb decisions. Uh, and if, if an animal can make a, a, a dumb decision, a human can make a dumb decision, then maybe we're not too different in regards to aliens. Uh, and, you know, it, it's a decision that, that fits perfectly with Jakar's personality, so of course he would do it. Smart move, no. Jakar move, yes. You know, it, so often we, we, we love to say this isn't logical. But humans aren't logical, so how is that anywhere close to a criticism? My own personal opinion on that argument, I've probably mentioned that before. Um, uh, matter of fact, I, th I, I think I have recently. Uh, and the, th the thing is, is that I, I've gotten a lot of flack for that, but I've also gotten a lot of praise for that. Uh, it, it, I don't know, just... Let me know your opinion on that, on storytelling and criticism of this isn't a logical move, but when it makes sense for the character uh, and how logic is so flawed within its own right when it comes to human thinking. But anyway, uh, and then it's just incredibly sad when, he, you know, uh, we see him pally around and is very lighthearted with Marcus to the, the tragedy of being captured. And the entire time Cartesia is telling Londo, oh, I have a gift for you. He keeps calling the gift it. You know, uh, bring it here. Uh, uh, I'm sure you will love it. You know, he keeps sort of dehumanizing. I know the irony that Jakar is not a human, uh, but see, sort of demoralizing him in a way of sort of making him an object, not a person. Objectifying. And... Then Jakar is brought in, he's in chains, he looks miserable, and yet he still stands there and he asks Cartesia straight to his face, do you happen to know where Mr. Garibaldi is? Now this serves twofold. This shows that he is not at all concerned, he, he is 
internally concerned about what's going on and he feels fear or he feels anguish and he's it, it's it is a very very sort of miserable sadness he's going to enter which we see later in the scene he shares with londo but but he refuses to show that face to cartesia cartesia isn't worth it and so he deflects second of all he's in the room with londo he and londo may not always get along uh but they're both friends of garibaldi and then speaking of the scene with Londo, it's a beautiful scene. Once again, as always, Peter Drask and Andres Katsoulis have amazing screen chemistry together. They just act, act circles around each other. It's just beautiful. Uh, but I love how Londo goes on this entire speech about what is going to happen to Dakar. And you can feel this remorse in him. Because he has seen this kind of action before. And he has put these people in power that will take these actions. In in effect, what is going to happen to Dakar is being done by Londo. It's that, that entire sort of th uh, the, the domino effect that I was talking about earlier with Delin. Because she withheld the choice. She is now uh, responsible for Sheridan's death, at least in her eyes. So in Londo's eyes, he is now responsible for what happens to Dracar. Once again, they may not get along together all the time, and they may have many times been rivals or outright enemies, but there is a respect there. And that's something that Londo even talks about, that if you had really wanted to die, all you had to do was let me know, and I could have arranged it. At least let you die with some dignity. You know, that... That entire ordeal right there, that it, it, Londo is seeing it his fault. And he sees the sheer it, it, amorality of the situation. He sees the monster that he put on the throne. And now, now he has a chance to get rid of that monster. And the gift that Cartesia gave him, that being Jakar, at first he was abhorred by the fact that you know, Jakar was being paraded around as nothing but a toy, and he even warns him, saying that you are going to be treated as nothing more than a toy. They will play with you before they even give you a chance to feel anguish and die. And he, he says that I will have to look upon this and look gleefully at your pain and your suffering. I will have to act just as monstrably as they do. But believe me, I do not believe that. I am not a monster. And he turns the gift that Cartesia gave him against Cartesia himself because he realizes that Jakar is his perfect, you know, uh, linchpin to be used in his plan to get rid of Cartesia. And as he says, you know, there is a monster on my throne. You must help me get rid of him. And, and, and Jakar says, sure, but I ask a price. And and Lando's like you're in no position to argue, and uh, you know, and and, and, and goes, well, you're not either. The idea being that they are in a position that are both backed into a corner, while one might literally be locked in chains, and the other one may be, you know, seen as living in a privileged sort of spot in society with all this political power. They are both backed into a corner in which they could easily be killed at any second. They are both caged animals right now. And so they have no other choice but to help each other. So they need each other for not only their safety, but the safety of their people. 
As Shakar says, if there is a monster on your throne, and I help you remove him, then you must help me remove the monsters from my world. Free my people. You know, that is the price for Jakar's loyalty to Londo's plan. And Londo agrees. This is now a debt between Londo and Jakar. They both prove to each other without a shadow of a doubt they are willing to die for their cause. And their cause is the safety of their people. Remember many, many, many episodes ago, I think back in season one, when I mentioned that there are so many parallels between Londo and Jakar, and in effect they are the same person put on opposite ends of ideology. That's where we're seeing this come to fruition. It's beautiful, beautiful stuff. It's only going to get better, too. Now, the Lordingen and Sheridan bits. I love Lordingen as a character. Uh, he is able to bring a sense of philosophy to the show. Like, Babylon 5 has always been philosophical and has a lot has had a lot to say on a social, political, uh, you know, scale. And its themes were always very philosophical and what it was exploring about the human condition. Um, but Lorian makes that less abstract and actively puts that in your face and forces you to think about things that sometimes you don't really think about. For instance, you know, uh, Sheridan talks about that he might be a prisoner, and Lorian says, I suppose, we're all prisoners of something, and, uh, and, and Sheridan says, well, the obligation for prisoners is to escape. Uh, you know, that is the first obligation and the only obligation of a prisoner. And Lorian basically throws that right back into his face, proving once, once and for all, I think, that absolutes are idiotic. And the fact that, fine, so you think a prisoner of love, someone who is madly in love, must escape. A prisoner of joy, someone who is absolutely wonderfully happy and content in their life, must escape. We're all prisoners of something. That's the point. So, absolutes never make a whole lot of sense. Uh, you know, they, they, they boil down complex ideas into very, very, very simplistic terms, and thus are incapable of noticing nuance and um, grayness in situations. And then uh, the entire Lordian outlook about, you know, everything has a, you know, a finite number of seconds given to them at birth. You know, uh, you know, tick talk tick tock but closer to the tick or closer to the talk you know uh in that his ideas are very zen like a very live in the moment because it's all we have you know uh everything will turn to ash eventually uh and this comes from his perspective as being the first one he is literally the first being in this universe and so he comes from the unique perspective of the fact that he has lived for so long and seen so many things change and evolve and yet stay the same that he's realized that nothing lasts forever. And yet nothing changes. It's this weird contradiction of the universe. As Jacquard puts it uh, in a conversation with Marcus, if you, if you spend your entire life thinking about all the times the universe doesn't make sense, you'll be confused, or you'll, uh, profoundly confused for every second of your life. And that's the point. 
uh, is it is Lorian's out, outlook is very zen and very um, ha, has has pretty much come to terms with what life has to offer, and accepts it and lives his way. It's also a cynical point of view because it believes that there is no escaping certain things, and yet hope is what drives a lot of people, and that's actually the entire point of the ending where he throws the questions so often posed since the gathering onto Sheridan. Who are you? What do you want? But then he adds two more. Why are you here? And where are you going? These accentuate the broader questions. Who are you is a, a very complex you know, question uh, and there is no real satisfying answer. Even Lorian says this. No answer can truly answer it. And then what do you want is simplistic enough, but it's not It's not as... Uh, not to be taken at face value, because I can say, for instance, I want chocolate candy. But why do I want chocolate candy? Is it because I'm hungry? Or is it because I, I want some something sweet? You know, uh, it, it could be a variety of issues. And so the why is required to understand the who and the what. And then the where, where are you going, it, it provides context for the why, the, the who, and the what. And then he brings in the, do you have anything to live for? Because we... As, as he points out, you find so many ways to die. It's too easy to literally turn yourself into someone who sees a way to die. This will be a good death. You know, I myself have fallen into that mentality many times as, as someone with depression of why am I here? I don't know. Do I have anything to live for? I don't think so. And that is false logic. You have to look at yourself and go, what can I define for myself as something good to live? Uh, you know, something good to live for. And that, those, the, those additions to the two questions add context and deeper meaning to the overall message of not only the show, but what the Vorlons and the Shadows have been fighting about. They have lost the context. They have lost the meaning, and thus they've never asked the questions to themselves. They'll become more apparent in future episodes. And these questions not only are important for the ongoing narrative, but are also just important life questions. And hell, they're important questions when writing stories. Um... That's what I love about this show is that it's metatextual in many different ways, but it also can be seen as sort of life advice. So, you know, kudos to JMS. Uh, and of course, uh, I love that Lorigan cannot breathe life back into Sheridan. Sheridan must hope that he survives the fall. And hope is all we have in the end. And so Sheridan... And Kosh, because it's revealed that Kosh is indeed inside Sheridan, and he cheated his death, as I hinted at and I think actively spoke about in a spoiler section, uh, that they're both afraid to pass on, to die. There, is there a chance that Sheridan will survive? Potentially. But he has to hope. 
but they're so wallowed in their own misery that they fail to see any other solution other than death. And so that is what happens, is he has to take the plunge. And Lorian only stokes the fires that are already there. He cannot breathe life back into Sheridan. So is Sheridan dead? Yes and no. This will become more complicated in a future episode, and I will talk about that then. Uh, but I just really love love the discussion Lorian and Sheridan have. Uh, and love, love the Jakar and Londo bits of this episode. It is a fantastic episode. Um, once again, uh, season four is... I'm not sure if it's my favorite season. Because uh, so much of this show is so good. But it's probably the strongest early on of the seasons. But anyway, I shall see you next time. Till then, bye. <laughs>